This is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. I'd like to thank our sponsors who make our podcast possible. We take our podcast with the ongoing support of Raider and Jason Sikora, our sound engineer. Raider is a hands-on IT service provider that integrates all of your needs for advanced technical support, effective communication options, and cybersecurity. Raider's motto is, you just want it to work. We understand. Please visit RaiderSolutions.com for more information. Iberia Bank and First Horizon, who are now one bank. Two relationship-driven banks, both leaders in the industry, have officially joined forces. The combination of Iberia Bank and First Horizon creates a leading financial services company dedicated to enriching the lives of their clients, associates, and their communities. I'd also like to thank Lafayette General Health, who has joined the Oshner Health family and is now Oshner Lafayette General. As one health system, Oshner Lafayette General will provide expanded services and enhanced care from the familiar faces you already trust. Oshner Lafayette General means more resources to help solve healthcare's toughest problems, reinvesting in our communities, and being further committed to health and wellness. Oshner Lafayette General, together means more. Learn more today at togethermeansmore.org. Our guest today is Jim Lambert, author of Sub Rosa and Other Stories. This is Jim's debut collection of short stories, which are largely set in Louisiana. The characters are interesting, to say the least, and all are searching for something more in their lives. Jim has enjoyed a successful career as an attorney here in Lafayette, and most notably, and what I believe shines the light on his fine character, is that he has been involved with Cairo's prison ministry on death row in Angola. So Jim Lambert, your book, Sub Rose and Other Stories, is is so compelling. I want to welcome you to Discover Lafayette. And thank you for taking the time to share your story and also your talent. I I love your book. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for your kind words. Um, It's something. I mean, it's easy to read. Short stories are the best. (laughs) <laughs> I think short stories should be the dominant literary uh, genre today uh, as opposed to novels. Most people are very uh, pressed for time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like uh, things in shorter bites these days. But um, for some reason, the short story is uh, not the dominant uh, literary form, uh, but the novel is. And uh, I have nothing against novelists. I, I would love to... Uh, get the inspiration and have the characters come into my mind to write a novel, but uh, I've always loved short stories. Yeah, I think Tom Hanks had recently, maybe the last few years, had written a book of short stories, and it was also good. It just I, I seem to recall that. I yeah. haven't read it, but he's good at everything he does. He's good at everything he does. And, I mean, you have been, too, so far. We're going to knock on wood, but I think this is a hit out the park. Um, mm-hmm. So let's talk first. You're, you have a career as an attorney and a successful career. And I know you wrote countless briefs, and our job as attorneys is to gather our thoughts, condense them, Mm -hmm. and express them coherently in a way that makes sense. So was it hard to transition from legal writing to writing short stories? Well, legal writing to me uh, is taking the story of your client and then using some um, 
you know, principles, which we call laws and regulations, um, court rulings, and then uh, putting it in a fairly highly technical format, legal writing, uh, which we're taught in law school and which hopefully we get better at over the years. But um, ultimately, uh, as I've told many people about law, it's just a damn shame that we're constrained by the facts so many yeah. times. <laughs> you know? I hate that. You yeah, know? <laughs> good, good facts make good cases and good lawyers, and bad yeah. facts uh, well, make, make mm. you look bad sometimes. But uh, I think the difference uh, is that you know, legal writing is, is certainly expositional. Uh, it's technical, um, and it has certain forms that are preferred by judges and scholars. Whereas creative writing, um, you know, you start from, you know, your own mind. Mm -hmm. And um, you can, you try to get in touch with a creative spirit that, unfortunately, as long as I was actively practicing law, I I had a hard time accessing that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting when I was reading some of the stories, I felt like I was either in a dream state, you know, like you're just, it's total fantasy, and then they would take these twists and turns. The stories just really had interesting twists to mm-hmm. them. And I want people to get this book. I don't want to tell them too much. <laughs> but when you write as a lawyer, as you said, you have to stay with the facts. So I guess you were allowed just to let your mind roam. It was really like a dream state, some of these stories. Well, um, the stories all have, I guess, one principle in common, and that is uh, there's some fact that is uh, I've heard, that I've seen, that I've been told, sometimes that has happened to me, uh, maybe a bit of history in, in mm-hmm. our home state, particularly my home region in central Louisiana where I grew up. And that I use as kind of an emotional anchor. Um, the uh, I know that's true. And so with that anchor, mm-hmm. you know, kind of... Uh, plunged into the rock, I can hang a story around it. And that's usually how these yeah. things start. Right. And, you know, the creative process is, you know, how does that story bloom and unfold? Mm-hmm. And that's that's really interesting. Uh, but I do need those uh, kind of initial anchors that, that give me the, uh, that make me want to tell that story. Right. You know? I felt like I was in some of the stories. I mean, your last story in the book is Sub Rosa, and that's mm-hmm. set in Grand Coteau. I've also gone through the Jesuit mm-hmm. Spirituality Center for extended retreats, and I felt like I was there as I was reading that story. Yeah. And then, of course, the one, I don't remember the name of the story, but the young fellow that was the um, the paper boy yeah, that prank. was it's running yeah, in, uh, in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So we all know these scenes as Louisiana residents. Yeah. But if you don't mind, um, I'd like you to read an excerpt that you might feel represents your book. Is there like a, uh, a short excerpt that you might want to read to just get a flair, a feel for what your writing style is? Well, I have this one story. Many of my stories are based uh, on historical characters. Uh, many years ago, I read a book uh, by... Um, Boyles, and I'm, I'm losing my his first name right now, uh, C.G. Boyles, um, 
it was about the life of Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh. And it's called The Women. And in it, uh, you know, the he architect. Had, yeah, yeah, the architect, the famous architect who had a very stormy uh, couple of marriages and mistresses and all kinds of. He had a life outside of drawing? Oh, Lord have mercy. He had a really <laughs> tumultuous life. And uh-huh. it was told from the standpoint the narrator was one of his graduate students, but. He put Frank Lloyd Wright as one of the central characters, and I, I just love that. I thought, well, why not? There, mm-hmm. there's so many historical characters we know a lot about, but you know, we don't know 80 percent of their personal lives. Why can't we use them in fiction? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, is that okay as a writer? Like, you don't have to get permission. From an estate, huh? I don't know the law. Well, this on that. one deals with Lee Harvey Oswald. I don't think he's I, gone. I yeah. don't think I have to get um, <laughs> the Oswald uh, uh, family's uh, permission. But no, uh, you can take a, a famous figure absolutely, and draw upon it. Absolutely, and um, this is a, a little story. I I came across some tidbit that Lee Harvey Oswald and his mother lived on a little street in the French Quarter called Exposition. Oh. Uh, Exposition Alley. It's right off Canal Street, uh, and they lived above a pool hall. And I think I saw something else where he went to a (laughs) Beauregard Junior High School down on Canal Street, which is a few blocks down. And I thought, well, how interesting. He was just a 14-year-old young man, young man, and he probably had some friends. And they just probably ran around and tried to get in trouble like other young people do. So this is a story called Lee and Me. You know him as Lee Harvey Oswald, the crazy assassin who killed President John F. Kennedy. We just called him Lee. I met him in 1954 on the corner of Canal Street and Jefferson Davis Parkway in New Orleans. We were on what is called the neutral ground. That's the land between the traffic lanes on big boulevards. I've never figured out why they call it neutral ground because there wasn't anything neutral about it. It was more like a battleground, boys and men fighting all the time. Lee and me, we met during a fight. A bunch of us ninth graders was hanging out at the playground and five hoods from Warren Easton High School came up and jumped us. There was about eight or nine of us, but those boys were older and one of them wrapped his belt around his fist and started wailing away on Lee. Oh, gosh. Lee was this skinny kid just assigned to my homeroom class. I felt sorry for him. I grabbed a fallen limb from one of the live oaks and whacked that hood upside his head. He fell off Lee just long enough for the two of us to take off running toward Bayou St. John a few blocks away. The hoods took after us. The boy with the belt looked like a charging bull with crazy eyes and a little streak of blood coming from his ear. As we neared the bayou, I yelled to Lee, I'm Murray, what's your name? Lee, thanks for helping. What the hell are we gonna do? We both stood breathless on the bank of the bayou as the hoods drew nearer. Can you swim, I yelled. We gotta swim the bayou, let's go. We dove into Bayou St. John and started swimming for the other side. The hood stopped at the water's edge. We made it across the dark green water and ran towards City Park where we hid in the thick bushes until after sunset. Lee looked at me and smiled. Man, you saved my ass. I owe you. Why'd you do it? Those guys could have killed both of us. 
I don't know, I just reacted. I saw that limb. I always take up for the underdog. There, among the bushes, we traded our histories, short as they were at the time. Lee's daddy died before he was born. Him and his mom moved around a lot, just returned from a stand in New York where he got thrown in the can as a juvenile delinquent. The two now lived in a tiny apartment in the French Quarter above a pool hall on Exchange Alley. He told me he could get me into the pool hall because his uncle knew the owner. He could teach me some pool shots and to throw darts. He seemed like a cool kid, the kind of kid I wanted to know, especially the part about the pool hall. I had never met a real juvenile delinquent. (laughs) So obviously, and thank you for reading that, obviously some of your characters are based in reality. Mm -hmm. Now, they were set in New Orleans. Some of your other stories are set there, too. What is your connection to New Orleans, and how does that inspire you? Well, I have a, a pretty deep connection to New Orleans. I was born there as a little you know, as a baby. Uh, I was adopted from the Baptist baby home uh, oh, sure. through the intercession of the Baptist, uh, good Baptist there. And uh, uh, later, my parents and I moved back to New Orleans. I lived there from like through the first grade through the around the fourth end of the fourth grade. And um, and then as a young lawyer, I moved back to New Orleans in 1976 and worked there a couple of years at a big law firm mm-hmm. where I met my wife. And uh, we moved up here to Lafayette in 1978. But, so that uh, was the first time you lived in Lafayette? When you yes, moved here after yes, law school? Yes, 1978. Oh, yes. wow. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Adopted. I, what a beautiful gift. Uh, yes, it was. And, you know, when I was 37 years old, I had the uh, incredible experience of meeting both my birth parents. You did? Yeah. Where were they from? Turned out well. They were from um, the Atlanta, Georgia area. Uh-huh. And uh, it would, turned out to be a happy story, but uh, doesn't always when people go on that journey, you know. Right. You don't, you don't know what you'll find. But it's beautiful. It was. I'm glad. Thank you for sharing that, sure. too. So some of these stories, you know, I've read that um, good characters write the story. Did you dream some of these, or did they write the stories? Where did you come up? I know you take things based maybe in some reality, some fact, you mm-hmm. know. But how, how does the story take off? Well, um, you know, all of them have a, you know, strong protagonist. Uh, I think all these stories are the story of the protagonist, whether they be written in the third person or the first person. But, um, and so, you know, in a sense, the the, the character's uh, journey is the, the arc of the story as well. Um, I'll give you one example. Um, I was taking a motorcycle trip in the Ozark Mountains several years ago when I was still riding motorcycles. (laughs) They're kind of heavy. I'm not (laughs) doing that anymore for various reasons. Uh, But uh, I met a lady, uh, and uh, I found out that she had lost a son. and, And the son had been a kind of a... A nomad that roamed around the West and would send postcards and Polaroid pictures back to her. And uh, there was something so poignant about that um, that idea, you know, of um, 
that her character, um, you know, just kind of jumped into my mind. It started with that profound loss. Yeah. And what did she do? You know, her son had died out west. What do you do? You know, what kind of journey do you go on? And um, so this was the, her her journey uh, to go retrieve her son. And uh, in doing that, you know, she also learns a lot about herself and uh, about his life. So, yeah, um, the other the, the story that uh, there's another story concerning a, a young man who finds out something horrible about his father, and then he goes on a journey, mm-hmm. steals his father's sailboat, and I love that goes story. to goes out to Horn Island off the coast of Mississippi, and uh, you know he goes on a journey there. Uh, where he learns a lot about himself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the characters, uh, sometimes their, their, uh, their loss or their trauma, you start out with that, and then how do they respond to that? Right, right. Well, look, I want to dig deeper into some of what mm-hmm. inspires you. Um, first, I'd like to take a break. We always listen back at a clip from an interview that I've done before. Mm-hmm. And one of my past guests is very interesting. You might know Dr. Joe Abraham. He's an emergency room doctor, and he's the author of Kings, Conquerors, Psychopaths, from Alexander to Hitler to the Corporation. And while the title is a bit strong, the book is unbelievable. It's a dive into history, Mm -hmm. and it's really about men, not many women, but men, Mm -hmm. power, and politics. But he's like you. I mean, he has this successful career, but he's got that creative streak. So Mm -hmm. I encourage people to... Listen back. You can go to discoverlafayette.net and you can find Joe Abraham's interview and over 225 or so others. You can also subscribe to Discover Lafayette anywhere you get your podcast. And this moment is brought to us by Kurgan Brothers Sonic, where you can enjoy the Raging Cajun cheeseburger for a limited time. And we've actually had them here and they're very good, very spicy with a mix of Tabasco brand, spicy mayo, pepper jack cheese, Tony Sachery's famous Creole seasoning, and fried onion tanglers. And most importantly, we'd like to thank Ted Kurgan and Kurgan Brothers for their generous support. And now the moment. And so I molded over over the years, and I slowly started to realize that these patterns are, are historical patterns. They go back to the very earliest stirrings of civilization. And there are historical reasons that the the Cajuns and Creoles, because it is it's a culture shared, um, their roots almost definitely go back to the 17th century and early 17th century in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Few local people are aware that the the first ancestors of the Acadians arrived 16 years before the Mayflower sailed um, in 1604, 1604. Arrived where? In 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 Port Royal. Oh. In Nova Scotia. And the the Mayflower would not sail until 1620. They were from? Uh, they were from Anjou and Poitou regions of France. Okay. And, uh, and the first really were a military garrison, but, mm-hmm. but there, were, there were colonists who arrived. And so they can arguably say they started in 1604. But the colonial French were not uh, the... the, the, the Nobility did not do a very good job of administering their colonies, and so the the Acadians, they were not yet Cajuns, um, just began doing it themselves, and 
um, a, a Yale historian, John McFarragher, says that, uh, or he said at least privately, but I asked him about it, he said, if I said it, I'll stick by it, mm-hmm. um, that the Acadians were the first New World Republicans. That is awesome. That, wow. Uh, and we asked him, we were at uh, Warren Parents. I love, I was just thinking of Warren. He's yeah. Gonna get, I love Warren and his love of history. So. Yeah. Well, we were at his house, and so a little of it was a little reception party for John McFarragher. And, um, you know, the question had come up, and we asked him again, uh-huh. did the Acadian experiment with democracy and early Republican ideals influence the founders of this country? And he paused for a moment. And he said, the silence is deafening. Wow. He said, they all the, the founders knew about the Acadians. They knew about their culture. And yet never in any of the public records are they ever mentioned. Welcome back to Discover Lafayette. I'm here with Jim Lambert, the author of Sub Rosa and Other Stories. And it's such a good book. I think it's a great gift for people to look at for, you know, what do you get, my brother? What do you get, mom, or something? It's a compelling book of short Mm -hmm. stories that are pretty much set in Louisiana. And it's just interesting to read. Mm -hmm. And I want to bring up, um, you've got recurring themes and you've also got several historical references, and I'm just going to call out a few. Mm-hmm. In the town named Out of Spite, you reference the Colfax Riot of 1873 in Grant Parish. In the report to Mrs. Roosevelt, you focus on the so-called Lee Street Riot of 1942, which happened in Alexandria. And then finally in Prank, which you just um, had mentioned a while back, you reference a mass lynching in 1908 in Sabine County, Texas. Now, in all of these stories, black citizens were killed by white citizens or by the police. How did you come to know about these, and how did that maybe inspire your your writing and your compilation of these stories? Mm-hmm. I know you've, you've taken a lot of time to sure. help people with your Kairos prison ministry also. I'm sure yeah, that well, inspired you. Um, the... The hidden history of racial violence in my home area, I, I, I kind of consider Alexandria the place I went through uh, elementary, junior high, high school, and okay. a couple of years of college to kind of be my hometown, so to speak. Yeah. Love Lafayette, and Lafayette's my home, but mm-hmm. kind of that's where I grew up there in Alexandria. And, um, you know, we were taught Louisiana history and, you know, probably somewhat of a, a lost cause mythology was uh, yeah. <laughs> was kind of in the air. And we just kind of took that as, you know, Fact. as given. Yeah. I was riding my motorcycle again um, <laughs> <laughs> and I stopped in Colfax, Louisiana to uh, to uh, take some pictures of the beautiful oak trees. And we were right by the courthouse and I saw a plaque and this plaque was erected in 1950, and it was still outside the courthouse until about three months ago. In 2021? In 2021. Wow. And this is what the plaque said. I think I can quote it. On this site, on April 13, 1873, the Colfax riot occurred, resulting in the deaths of three whites and 150 Negroes. This event marked the beginning of the end of carpetbag misrule in the South. Now, you, you said that without looking at a piece of paper. No, I, I think I'm pretty... Yeah. <laughs> and so I looked at it, and I thought, wait a minute, 150 and three? And they're calling it a riot? 
<laughs> so, you know, got on Google and, oh my it was, God. It was accurate. The numbers were somewhat accurate, but it was known everywhere else in the world as the massacre. It was a major event in the United States, published all over in every newspaper, every magazine. President Grant was, you know, sent troops to try to. It was there was a contest. It's ironic, and it was in Grant Parish. Yeah. Well, there's a story behind that too. Um, oh, okay. Uh, um, but well, it's um, not ironic. Maybe it's the result <laughs> of that. Yeah. And um, anyway, a major decision uh, came out of the U.S. Supreme Court on this, U.S. versus Cruikshank, about the application of the 14th Amendment. And so oh. all of this history had occurred. There had been white militias who had surrounded, there was a contested gubernatorial election. They had surrounded some Negro Republican troops in the courthouse and sieged it with a cannon, and then they basically, you know, killed about half of them, and the other half they just put a bullet through their head. And so this was this outrage, and it appeared nowhere in any history book I'd ever read. So three whites yeah, died. Three whites. But died. these weren't Ku Klux Klan. It was well, militia. they were. They were. They were known they as were, militia. <laughs> Because it was eight years after the yeah, Civil War it, ended. I'm sure they were all members of the Klan, but there was it, the Civil War really did not end in Louisiana until about 1876. Uh, there were there were several battles in New Orleans and other places, but Colfax was a very notorious place. So this started making me look deeper. And then another incident that I had been told of in Alexandria as I grew up was. People, there were rumors about a race riot that occurred during World War II. That was all that was said. And so mm -hmm. I did some research a few years ago, and I found that it was an excellent article done by a history professor at Louisiana College in Pineville about this event that occurred on January 10, 1942, about seven weeks after Pearl Harbor. And Alexandria was the hub of a whole bunch of training bases. Right. Around, and so troops were there uh, on the weekend, on weekend leave, and it was a it was an area for the for the blacks right. uh, called Lee Street, and uh, you know a fight had started, and next thing you know, there were about eighty police officers just emptying their guns into a whole pack of you know a couple of blocks of unarmed black troops. And a number of witnesses have given sworn testimony that as many as 18 or 19 troops were killed. The Army released a report saying no one was killed, and there were a lot of people wounded, but everyone was cool. and Nothing you know, to worry about. Nothing to worry about. Now, this was at a time right after Pearl Harbor. Yeah, they didn't Everything want was controversy, I'm sure. Horrible yeah. events were going on all over the world. But, yeah, this was, again... Uh, some kind of hidden history of my region that I, and it changed my perspective uh, on, uh, you know, the benevolence of <laughs> some of the white residents of, uh, of my town. Because during the 60s, luckily, we did not have terrible, you know, violence like Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia. But, but still, Judge Scott was there. He was a major force. Oh, sure. With uh, yeah, well, they're, they're, desegregation. Absolutely. No, there yeah. had to be the forced, judge, forced uh, district judge. Yeah, there had to be forced mm -hmm. integration, and mm -hmm. the, and the judges were very courageous. Uh, 
both in Alexandria and elsewhere, mm-hmm. but um, they did the right thing. But it's changed. And so that was a, these incidents. Um, How long ago was that when you started learning all this? Uh, probably about 10 years ago, 10, 10 or 12 years ago, something like that. Is that what spurred you to get involved with Kairos? When, when no. did you find yourself no, being I, uh, sensitive to injustice like this? Well, Kairos, uh, my Kairos prison ministry, by the way, is a is a, a prison ministry that a, is president in about thirty five states at the present time, and number of prisons, men and women's prisons. We hold uh, uh, three three and a half day retreats, very similar to what is called Curcio in the Catholic Church, or uh, walk to Emmaus in the Methodist Church. Um, and uh, they're very intense. They're wonderful. They give these men and women a chance to experience unconditional love. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, my call to Kairos uh, came out of some um, just some personal things I was going through with, you know, in my in my own life. And um, uh, a sweet man uh, who's now passed on named Neville Bro um, oh, invited me to, to come yeah. to Kairos. He and, did. Uh, yes. And uh, he and he and I became very oh, dear friends. And, what, a, uh, what a wonderful soul. Yeah. yeah. He was he was a unique, uh, loving man. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I started being involved in Kairos in around the year 2001. Okay. And so... Yeah. Because um, your book... And I know you just outside of what we're talking about today, mm-hmm. and I want to get back to your book, you know, yeah. as we kind mm-hmm. of let you tell your story, but you don't just talk about this. You really, you work to make a difference. Well, I thank you for saying that. Um, it Just like any time you uh, approach uh, suffering, you know, if you're going to visit someone in a nursing home or in a hospital, if you're caring for a family member, uh, if you're going to a prison, um, anytime you're doing something for someone else, um, you feel close to God, yeah. you know. And and there is a for, for the for the person that's giving the effort, there's a good feeling, you know. So we get something out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, the men also get something out of it. But it's a it's a yeah. you know. As I said, you can do this in your own family, and and mm-hmm. an act of kindness uh, is is a reciprocal thing. Yeah, both parties benefit. But you're God's hands here on earth. Well, and His heart too. We have to be. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's hard, but uh, yeah, it's worth it. <laughs> well, Always. well worth it. Right. In fact, we're, I'm I'm so excited um, on Monday. Um, you know, just a couple of days, a friend of mine and I are going to be the first guys back to visit some of our uh, alumni on death row. They've and, lifted uh, the—I um, know yeah. that they, people couldn't go in the prison. Yes, they're, they're in COVID. the process of allowing They've lifted a few that. people uh-huh. in. And, of course, you know, proof of vaccinations, masks, yeah. et cetera. But, uh, you know— That's great. Yeah. Boy. I bet, the, I bet that's been a tough time for people it's in been death a long, row. I can't even imagine what they've been through. Right. Can't right. even imagine. So back to your book, I want you to talk about what you want to talk about. I, I had kind of one last question, and you can weave in other things, mm-hmm. but how do you know when a story is finished? Like all of these stories, and you've got, I don't know how many are in there, 12, 15, you've got a lot mm-hmm. of stories, mm-hmm. but they're short. I mean, you can read them, 
quickly yeah. if you're in the bathtub or maybe you'll have to do books on tape. I don't know if you've done that where people can listen when they walk or drive, but how do you know when a story is finished? Like I asked you earlier about how does it, how does it get written? How does it mm-hmm. come through you? But how do you know when to finish it? When is it finished? Well, there's, there's, there's actually um, a well-established pattern of storytelling that I really wasn't even familiar with till a few months ago. I just started writing stories. You didn't take classes on. I, I took a, I took a couple of classes at UL. One of which uh, was under. Uh, I took a basic. Mm-hmm. Uh, creative writing class. I think his name was Dr. Rice. And you then, recommend that to people? I, yes, I do. I've yeah, heard it's good. Gonna, and, then yeah. I, and then I was uh, admitted to uh, a writing uh, workshop for a semester with Ernest Gaines. Oh, wow. And that was really yeah. so fantastic. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of graduate students in there who were real writers. And then he allowed, <laughs> you know, he allowed... Unlike you. Well, you know, he allowed... <laughs> He allowed four or five people from the community. You had to submit a, <laughs> a writing time. sample, and I bet you know, love this. And, and love I think he did. would be uh, happy that I did mm-hmm. that. You know, he'd be satisfied that he inspired me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the truth is, I just like being around him. I was more inspired by him. Ernest didn't really teach, you know, the nuts and bolts of here. This is what you do. And Grammar, we yeah. would we would write. We would present our stories, and mm. the class would critique it, and you know that type of thing. But uh, it was just so amazing being around this immensely talented mm-hmm. man. Um, and he was a great novelist and a fantastic short story writer. If, if, if you've never read the the sky is gray, the sky is gray by Ernest Gaines, one of the great American short stories, wow. really excellent short story. Did he teach you about when a story is finished? Did he kind of give you guys tips on the big picture? Well, um, I think every story. Some of some people might find some some of my stories to end abruptly. Yeah, you know, they but might. they end like in a way you want more. That that would be, you know, my goal is obviously to write a story and, and, you know, in such a way that the reader wants to read the next story. Mm -hmm. You know, you you want to keep the reader engaged enough to finish the book, hopefully. And uh, the people that have told me that they have finished the book, you know, I think they're glad they did. And Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure there's some stories that, um, you know, they like more than others. So many uh, of the literary journals these days want really short stories. How short? I mean, two thousand words. Really? Yes, fifteen hundred. That's not uh, much. Most of mine are around five or six thousand yeah. words, which you know ends up being seventeen, eighteen type pages, something like no that. No pictures. You know? Uh, no, of course not. <laughs> and, I'm kidding. You uh, know, yeah. The way uh, people read. And uh, no, I don't have any pictures. Uh, but. Uh, I I prefer a little longer, uh, mm-hmm. you know. And and to be honest with you, so many of these literary journals now really want kind of. I don't know. I don't really know what they want. They I don't think they really want the story. You know, so many of my stories are kind of set in the past mm-hmm. uh, in the South, and so it, it is. It's a particular. Um, 
subject matter that is certainly not going to have a, as much of a national appeal. It's it's certainly more of a, I don't I don't I'm happy to say that I'm a Southern uh, storyteller. Yeah. 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 Would you, um, as we wind down, before mm-hmm. we started interviewing, my daughter Taylor was here taking our photo, mm-hmm. and uh, we were talking about the story about the young paperboy in yeah. New Orleans, and mm-hmm. I, it was really fascinating to me going back to the historical figures and the factual things that you drew mm-hmm. upon. But would you talk about that? What was going on in the the '60s with sure. the um, LSD movement and mm-hmm. kind of what inspired you to write that story because this is something I think people would really enjoy to know. Well, about. part of the uh, one of the factual anchors or emotional anchors for for this story called Prank is uh, something I picked up from watching a movie on Amazon called Magic Trip, and it is a it is a documentary uh, which utilizes actual film taken by uh, Ken Kesey and, and his friends when they took a, a, a trip uh, from the West Coast to the East Coast and then back along the northern part of the country, back to Oregon, uh, in the summer of 1964. And I was always interested in Ken Kesey as a young person for you know, various reasons. He was kind of a leader of a uh, <laughs> movement. I had some uh, real interesting uh, books. Uh, you know, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is probably his most famous, but um, sometimes a great notion is another one. And um, the part of this, in this movie, you know, he, he goes through, um, you know, going through the southern route, and they, they go through New Orleans, and they you know, you can actually find out the exact day they were there. It was uh, June 20th or 21st of 1964. And they spent a lot of time in the French Quarter drinking and carousing and what have you, and then got in the bus, and they decided they wanted to uh, take a dip and go for a swim in Lake Pontchartrain, and someone told them about Lincoln Beach. And uh, as a child growing up in New Orleans, I knew about... Pontchartrain Beach, which was a white-only amusement park and beach. And then there we heard, I never went there, but there was Lincoln Beach, which was out in New Orleans East. So, uh, you know, I actually saw in this movie the the bus of uh, crazy people. Now, remember, there were no things known as hippies then. These are just... 1964, the Beatles barely, you know... (laughs) come across the ocean. Exactly. People didn't even know what LSD was. <laughs> it was just people who were acting strange. And uh, th- these strange people piled out of this painted school bus into the waters of Lake Pontchartrain and at Lincoln Beach. And so the, the residents who were swimming there didn't appreciate the intrusion of white people into one of the only, uh, you know, uh, Safe places. set aside <laughs> places that they had. And so it was quite interesting. They got back in the bus and went to Pensacola from there. But uh, that mm-hmm. that little story uh, served as an anchor. And, I, you know, again, I took another took imaginary character, you yeah. know, encountering yeah. these people. And, mm-hmm. and so I used that real event as a, uh, you know, kind of a framework uh, for the story. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed the book. And, 
again, for um, anybody looking for a great Christmas gift or a gift, mm-hmm. I'd love for you to check out by Jim Lambert, uh, Sub Rosa and other stories. And I'll have a link on the yeah, show notes on my, my website. But it's it's a wonderful book, and it's just... Yeah. Um, Take so many twists and turns that are unexpected. And I think, you know, I, I like to read a lot. I love fantasy, and, mm-hmm. and it's an escape. Mm-hmm. So I want to thank you for sharing your time today well, with us. I and appreciate you having me, Jan. And uh, It's always a pleasure, Jim, in, to see the, you. Any of those who are interested in purchasing it, it's uh, pretty reasonable in my estimation. But particularly if you're a digital reader, it's two ninety nine. It is? On Audible? So, uh, on, uh, no, on uh, Amazon. and uh, Okay. Um, you know, uh, books a million, um, iBooks, you know, okay. all that. So and then the can, book they can also buy on yeah, Amazon. Yeah, you can get the, the sh- soft or hard cover. Yeah. Exactly. I'll, yeah. I'll put a link on our website. Wonderful. But it's just, thank it's you. It's beautiful. And I'd like to thank our listeners for um, tuning in and listening to Jim Lambert. We just appreciate your support so much. And we're very grateful to our sponsors. I'd like to list them. Iberi Bank, thank you for your ongoing support. Iberi Bank is now a part of the First Horizon family. Oxner Lafayette General, thank you for all you do to keep Discover Lafayette going. Raider, and especially Chris Raider, and of course Jason Sikora, who mixes our tapes, and Kurgan Brothers Sonic. Thank you all. On behalf of Discover Lafayette, this is Jan Swift. 